0: Most ancient civilizations are shown to have had a concept of judgment upon the bad guys and the bad people after they died. Almost all, all cultures throughout history and societies had these kinds of beliefs. In ancient Egypt, they believed that at death, a person faced judgment by a tribunal of 42 divine judges. And if they decided that you did not live a good life, you were thrown to one known as the devourer. And the devourer would punish and torment you and then, after he was done, condemn you to a lake of fire. That does not sound good. Cultures in the Mesopotamian area spoke of a netherworld, a shadowy netherworld that awaited the bad people upon their death. The Greeks taught of a deep place known as Tartarus. And it was a gloomy dungeon pit, abyss type place. A place of torment and suffering. Plato wrote that souls were judged after death, and those who were to receive punishment went to this place, Tartarus. Aztecs taught of a place for sinful people below ground, wet and dingy and uninviting. Sounds kind of like a moldy grave. That's the Asiatics. The uh, Aztecs, I should say, believed in an unworthy place for the dead. They traveled to a place of darkness known as uh, Mictlan, And here, the wind carried swords scraping their flesh. Knives that would scrape your flesh in this place, carried about by the wind. There was a river of blood that had dangerous devouring jaguars in it. These are just some of the samples of cultures throughout history who have taught regarding the punishment of uh, those who were sinners and sinful upon their death. All these things, all these cultures had these things taught. However, what do you suppose the members of Joel Osteen's church know about what happens to the wicked when they die? Or what do they know about judgment after death? What are they taught? And here is a place that calls itself a Christian church and isn't supposedly filled with myths or fairy tales or fables. It supposedly has the Bible But the leader of this congregation refuses to even so much mention sin or mention the wrath of God or what happens to the wicked upon death. Why bother being saved? You're all good anyway. This is seemingly what we've come to in churches. It's like everyone goes to heaven and it's taboo to talk about the alternative. You can't speak about God's wrath or God's judgment on sin. It just doesn't make people feel good and you won't grow a church that way. Now, this is very odd because these same churches would readily and quickly teach that you must be saved. And they talk to people about being saved. Lots of churches do. They talk about being saved and that you must be saved and you have to experience salvation. But the problem is, they never tell you saved from what? What is salvation from? This is where we began last Lord's Day in our study on the beauty of wrath. And under our first major heading, The Reality of Wrath, we saw this common conviction and we looked at just three specimen texts from the Scriptures that show and teach that men must be saved and spoke about salvation And we mentioned that the words that are used are sozo and soteria, and they are speaking of being rescued from danger or rescued from peril. And so although plenty of places use the words, they never say saved from what? And then we went on to see just briefly from the Scriptures that in every case and in every way, when salvation is spoken of, it is always spoken of in the context of being saved from the wrath of God. If you are saved, that is what you are saved from. The wrath of God. The punishment of God poured out upon sinners in hell. Following death. That is what salvation is. And that's where we looked last Lord's Day in the Scriptures. That's where that peril comes from. The wrath of God. So, no matter how much liberal churches protest or deny or ignore, in all situations, in all occasions, salvation is speaking of being saved from the wrath of God to come. And although they might not see it, Paul said... It should be evident to everyone in Romans chapter 1. That's what he speaks of. The wrath of God is evident to all people. They know it. People know there's life after death and there's judgment to come for sin. All right, now today we're going to take up. not only looking at that common conviction that many people speak of in regards to the salvation from sin. Today we're going to pick up with what we might call the chronicle of the concept. And what I mean here is the teaching presented throughout God's Word so that we can see the history of God speaking of His judgment and His wrath throughout the Scriptures. Now, before we begin to look at this, I just want to again tell you and promise you that these are all good things. That God's wrath is because He is a just and a holy God. And that when we consider our salvation, we are going to see the beauty of our salvation in contrast to His wrath upon the lost. So all of this will work together and show us the beauty of God's wrath. But turn with me, if you would please, to in your Bibles to the book of Genesis chapter 2 as we would expect to find the first pronouncement of judgment right in the very beginning of our Bibles. Genesis Chapter 2. As you know that this is the account of creation in the first chapter of the Genesis. We have the general creation of the heavens and the earth. And on the sixth day, God created man. And now in chapter 2, we sort of focus in on that creation of man in the first several verses. In verse 7, God says that the Lord God formed man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. And it speaks of the Lord planting a garden and putting the man in the garden, and He was to tend the garden and He named all the animals. But what I want for us to see from this portion right now is to look at what it says in verse 16. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, From the tree of the garden you may freely eat, but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. You all know about that, right? There are commercials, there are cartoons, there are all kinds of things that show Adam and Eve and they're standing there in the garden and they are looking at this fruit and it looks like an apple, but it never says it was an apple. But they had this fruit and they're looking at this fruit and you know they're not supposed to eat it. Well, how do you know they're not supposed to eat it? Because God told them not to eat it. Right? But he didn't end there. Look at what the rest of the verse says. God commanded the man saying, From the tree of the garden you may eat freely, but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat for in the day that you eat from it you shall surely die. There's consequences to your sin. Consequences. So, the promise the command and the details were given to Adam right at the very beginning. However, if you look over to chapter 2, we find in chapter 2 in verses 2 and 3 as Eve is addressing the serpent that she knew about this command. She also knew what God had commanded regarding the tree. Verse 2, And the woman said to the serpent, From the fruit of the trees of the garden we may eat, but from the fruit of the tree which is in the middle of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat from it or touch it, lest you die. And so God put forth the commandment to Adam, and Eve knew the commandment, whether God had reinforced it to her as well, or whether Adam taught his wife, they knew they were not to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil they knew they were not to eat and they were told that rebellion that if they ignored the command if they did eat that fruit there would be consequences and the consequences were death the consequences were god's punishment god's judgment So we clearly see even here from the very beginning of creation the promise of God that there would be judgment upon sin. To disobey would bring swift and severe punishment from God and death. Now we know from what happened that uh, Adam and Eve ate from the tree. And we know that God's promises were not hollow, not empty. That as they ate from that tree, sin entered into the world and death. Not only did they now have physical death, but we also know that this reference to death speaks of eternal death, eternal punishment. That men and women born into the world from now on are at enmity with God alienated from God. Adam's sin, according to Romans 5, is imputed to every man, woman, boy, or girl, except Jesus, who has ever lived. Because Jesus was not born of the seed of Adam. He was born of a virgin. But everyone else, including all of you, all of you, are born at enmity with God, alienated from God, sinners from God, and you are therefore in danger of His judgment. We are all men born into this world in danger of the judgment of God. And that death spoken of is not only physical death, it is eternal death, right from creation. Now, turn to Psalm 2. We see that as the result of the fall. That there is the judgment of God upon man. Let's look at chapter or Psalm 2, I should say. And see here the anger of God against sin. Psalm 2. The anger of God against those who stand against Him. Verse 1. Why are the nations in an uproar And the people's devising a vain thing. The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against His anointed. Let us tear their feathers apart and cast away their cords from us. You see the picture? Here we've got men who are rebellious men. Rebellious men against God. Let's tear ourselves away from God. We don't want this God to rule over us. We don't want anything to do with this God. And so they're going to counsel together against God. And what does God do? Well, in verse 4, He sits in the heavens and laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. Think about it. What can you do? What can you do against God? What can you do? to thwart the plans, the purposes, the counsels of God. He is God! And we are but men. And so He sits in the heavens and laughs. But look at this, verse 5. Then He will speak to them in His anger and terrify them in His fury. Remember we looked at Hebrews chapter 10 last week, and it says it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of an angry God. It is a fearful thing. He will terrify them in His fury. It speaks of utter wrath of God poured out upon those who stand against Him and against His ways. And against His principles. How many people are there like that? Even in our own land today. We sung a few kind of patriotic hymns. Where men in America used to stand in awe of God. They used to appreciate God. They used to be thankful to God for the bountiful blessings that we have from sea to shining sea. God has blessed America. And He has. And now, men and women everywhere scoff at God. Mock God. Mock at His people. Stand against Him. Stand against you. Mark His words. They will have a terrifying end as they will face His fury. It will be a sad day. More about that day to come. But turn over to verse 12 and look down at verse 12. Do homage to the Son, lest He become angry and you perish in the way. For His wrath may soon be kindled. How blessed are all who take refuge in Him. This is the contrast that you will see throughout Scripture. His wrath is kindled against those who do not do homage to Him. But, how blessed, how cared for are those who take refuge in Him. Blessed of God. But it speaks even of the wrath of the Son. Even the wrath of the Son, Jesus. I'd hope to actually get to that today, but it looks like we're going to have to wait a little while to get to the New Testament and see what it speaks of regarding Jesus. But here, even in the Old Testament, in Psalm 2, it speaks about the wrath of the Son. That you would kiss the Son, lest He become God is angry with the sin. And look at Psalm 7. It's not the sin. Psalm 7, down to verse 11. God is a righteous judge. This is what has to be foundationally understood in all that we're looking at. God is a righteous judge. It's not that He's doing this capriciously. He's not like those Roman gods standing up in heaven throwing down arrows at people at a whim. That's not who God is. That's not what God is like. But God is a holy, perfectly holy, pure, undefiled, spotless, righteous God who cannot behold sin. And so, he is a God of perfect justice and righteousness and must punish sin. Even in America, we understand if you break the law, there is punishment that has to come. If there is no punishment, then the law is worthless. If everybody's going along Breaking the law, and you have some people that don't break the law, and there's no justice for those who seek righteously to live righteous lives, then there, that is not justice. That's anarchy. That's wickedness. That's wrong. And everybody knows that. There has to be justice. And God is a God of justice. So he says in verse 11, God is a righteous judge and a God who has indignation every day. Now, that term indignation every day is translated in some versions as angry with the wicked every day. Because that's what indignation means. Indignation means that He is angry with the wicked. He has indignation upon them. He is angry with the wicked every day. Have you ever heard the phrase that is popular in our day? That God hates the sin, but loves the sinner. God hates the sin, but loves the sinner. You know, that may be a a, a neat phrase and sounds really good and all that, but it's utter heresy. It is terrible theology. You cannot show me a sin. You cannot give me a bucket of sin or a pound of sin that you can therefore then put it in front of God that he will somehow then be angry at the sin. This text does not say God is angry at the sin. This text says that He has righteous indignation against the wicked every day. He's angry at the wicked, not their sin. Angry, of course, at the fact that they are sinning. Angry, of course, at the sin they commit, for sure, but it's them that are committing it. And God is angry with the sinner every day. God is angry at sinners, not just sin. It is as though today there is no difference to God between rebellious sinners and his children. God just loves everybody, God just loves you. And has a wonderful plan for your life. You know, I do believe that God loves His creation. And in some ways, He is so wonderful and kind to every single man, woman, boy, or girl who has ever lived. He's given people the air that they breathe, the food that they eat. In Matthew's Gospel, it tells us that He causes His rain to fall upon the just and the unjust. He's gracious, He's kind to all. But. He's angry at the wicked. And He will bring judgment. Verse 12, If a man does not repent, he will sharpen his sword. He has bent his bow and made it ready. Notice again, if a man does not repent. Why do you think John the Baptist came preaching, Repent! Turn from your sin. Because this is the biblical contrast. God does not look at men indiscriminately and all are the same. He loves His children with a special, gracious love and mercy. But upon those who are impenitent, those who are against Him, His sword And His bow, His wrath, are made ready. Let's turn now to Psalm 51. That passage of Scripture which we read a little of a few minutes ago. Psalm 51. As we see next, the justification of God. The justification of God in His wrath. As we look at some of these verses and consider some of these things, people may ask, well, why does God have the right to be angry with men? I'm not so bad. I'm not such a bad guy. Why does God have the right to be angry with me? I haven't done that much. I'm certainly not as bad as the guy down the street. He's much worse than I am. God can't be that angry with me, preacher. This is what people tell themselves. That He has no reason to be angry with me. I'm not so bad. But what I want for us to see here is two things. Number one, the reaction of a person who is conscious of his own sin before God. And number two, the justification of God in his anger. Verse 1 of Psalm 51. Be gracious to me, O God, according to thy loving kindness, according to the greatness of thy compassion. Blot out my transgressions. You notice he's not asking God for justice. He's not praying and asking God for justice, O oh God, have justice upon me. He's asking God for mercy and compassion that he would blot out My transgressions wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgression and my sin is ever before me. Against Thee only I have sinned and done what is evil in Thy sight. Do you see the heart of a man who knows what he is? in the presence of a holy God. He's not blaming Bathsheba because this is, of course, as you know, the result of his sin with Bathsheba and what happened and how he then put his uh, her husband to death. This is all in response to that. And Nathan the prophet has come to him and told him of his sin. And this is David's response to God. I am a sinner! He didn't say, Oh God, why was Bathsheba so stupid that she was bathing on the roof so I could see her? Why did Abner put her husband in the front line? He doesn't do any of that. He doesn't blame anyone for his sin. Look how many times in this text he says, according to thy loving kindness, be gracious and blot out my transgressions, my iniquity. Cleanse me of my sin, for I know my transgressions, my sin is ever before me. I'm the one who has sinned. I am the sinner. We live in a culture and in a society that is so swift to point the finger of blame at anyone and everyone else. I didn't do it. My sister did it. I didn't do it. My brother did it. My wife made me do it. You go back to that passage in Genesis chapter 3, and God speaks to Adam. What have you done? The woman whom you gave me, she made me do it. So he blames not only his wife, but he blames God for giving him his wife. The woman whom you gave me, she made me do it. That's what Adam said. Blamed his wife and blamed God. What does Eve say? The serpent made me do it. Blame the serpent. The blame game. But here, David doesn't blame anyone. He owns up to his own sin. He takes responsibility. And you know what, people? This is what it's going to be like. When you stand before God, you're not going to be able to blame anyone else. You're not going to be able to say, my sister did it, or my brother did it, my wife did it, my husband did it. It's going to be you and God. Just you and God. And David stands there before God and says, I know I am a sinner. I know my iniquity. And right now, every single one in this room can look into his own heart or into her own heart and know their iniquity. Own up! Man up! You know your sin before a holy God. I know mine. My sin is ever before me. And no matter how much I confess and repent, I am prone to wander. Prone to leave the God I love. I'm prone to sin because we are all sinners. We are not sinners because we sin. We sin because we're sinners. Thankfully, God knows your frame that you are but dust. And that's why David is crying out to Him for mercy, not justice. Because we have a God who is a merciful God. We have a God who is a loving God. A compassionate God. Thank God! Thank Him that He is a God who would show mercy to even a sinner like me. But look next at what David says in the text. Verse 4, Against thee, thee only I have sinned and done what is evil in thy sight, so that thou art justified when thou dost speak and blameless when thou dost judge. You can't blame God for your sin. And you can't blame God for His justice when it is meted out upon the sins of men. We, again, in our society, are are bombarded with people who would stand there and go, Oh, why would God do such a thing? How could a loving God do such a thing? And how could a God of love take away my child as a baby? How could a loving God take away my husband in a car accident? How could a loving God send a tornado and wipe out our community? How could a loving God do this? Or how could a loving God do that? They always look at it from this way. How could God do that? They never look at it from God's perspective. How could you sin day after day after day and curse Him into His face and curse and take His name in vain and trample under your feet His laws and His ways and shake your fist in His face and say, I will not have you to reign over Me. Just like we saw in Psalm 2. They never think about that. They never think of their own sin and their own wickedness and their own rebelliousness against God. He is just when He condemns. He is just when He sends wrath. And in the kind providence of God... We saw in the reading that Daniel read from Amos chapter 4 today that time and again he sent prophets. And time and again, according to the reading, he sent tests and storms and famine and other things so that people would repent and come back to God. But they didn't. But they didn't. But they didn't. Isn't that what he read? But they didn't. But you refused. I fear the same thing is happening in our land. Times are just beginning to get tough. Do people repent and turn to God? It's as though they're running as fast as they can in the opposite direction. Let's legalize sodomy. Let's legalize sodomy marriages. Let's legalize drugs. Let's steal more and more. It's, it's like they're getting worse instead of going, Oh God, have mercy on us for our sin. Don't ever think that the judgment of God is unjust. The judgment of God is right And proper. For He is a righteous, holy God. And He is angry with the wicked every day. And it is only by His mercy that we are not instantly consumed by the flames of hell. As Jonathan Edwards preached in his sermon, Sinners, In the hands of an angry God. The only thing that keeps men today. From the flames of hell. Are the gracious hands. Of a compassionate God. But all he has to do. Is go like that. And you fall into the flames. Of his judgment. This text says. That He is justified when He speaks and blameless when He judges. And that, people, is true. And why is it true? Because we are the sinners and He is the Holy God. And so I call on you today to repent before this God. To come to Him and plead With Him as David, the psalmist here, pleads with Him for mercy. God, have mercy on me. I know I'm a sinner. I deserve hell. But I ask You out of mercy to save me. And you know what He does? He saves you. And what is salvation? Saves you from his wrath saves you from his righteous wrath. What a loving God we have, who, although we in this place, many of us deserved his judgment, deserved hell for all eternity, yet he, out of his love, And out of His mercy heard our cries, drew us sweetly to Himself by the power of the Holy Spirit and saved us from His wrath. I cannot help but wonder if you don't recognize yourself as a sinner before a holy God if you don't recognize the fact that you are in danger of eternal damnation and punishment in hell for all eternity, why would you want to be saved? Saved from what? If you don't know who God is in all of His holiness and splendor and beauty and who you are as a sinner, why would you want to be saved? Why would you care? And in many places, the only reason people say they're saved and the only reason they go to church is for social reasons. Well, it's a great time. My kids are, are taught stuff. They come home with these Great pictures of Noah's Ark and things, and we really put them up on the wall on the refrigerator. It's a great we love church, we love going to church. What has that got to do with salvation before a holy God? The issues of our day are sin and death and hell. And we're being lulled to sleep by entertainment. Dancing! And sweet little ditties from pulpits where men don't even use the Bible. God have mercy. God have mercy. Now, I don't want you kids to think that Pastor Hildebrandt's all angry and mad. I'm not mad at you, I'm not a mean guy, but I care. I care about you and where you will spend eternity. Because I love you. And when you know God and when you know His wonder and His holiness and when you know what heaven is is all about and how wonderful it is, you will want everyone you know and everyone you love to go there and not to go to hell. And that's what I want. I want you to go to heaven. I want you to go to be with God. And I want you to be afraid of going to hell. I do. I want you to not want to go there. And I want to tell you that the way you don't go to hell is to love Jesus. To love God. To pray and ask God to forgive you. And God, I don't want to go where that preacher was talking about today. I don't want to be like that. I want to go to be with you. I want to love you. I want to be with you forever, God. That's what I want you to pray, even today. That by His grace and by His mercy, He will save you. I was going to go on to look at another text. We can't even get to it. But I'm just going to tell you right now, He knows everything about you. He knows every little thing you do. So There's nothing you can get away with that God doesn't know. So you confess to Him your sin and you ask Him, Oh God, save me please. I want to be with you in heaven forever. Let's pray.